0: Thank you for joining us on a Morley podcast with Tony May Morley podcast is purpose-built for America. Through our military veterans and military supporters, we show that the values and qualities that built this country, such as service, sacrifice, respect, and faith are not dead. And Morley podcast builds community so individuals can improve their communities. Welcome to the Ranger for Life, a Morley podcast where we share stories of service and sacrifice from America's military community for America. We're excited to announce that all proceeds from 3Nails Clothing sales using the code Ranger will benefit the Ranger Outreach Center at St. Luke Church in Columbus, Georgia. 3Nails Clothing, pursue your passion. Check out their website, 3NailsClothing.com, for a full line of activewear. And Friday, September 30th, Atlanta Braves Hall of Fame, Hall of Famer and Legend Dale Murphy will be at St. Luke Church for a benefit for the Ranger Outreach Center. You can purchase your tickets online thanks to partnership with Gallant Few. Tickets and tables are now available. You can go to the website, give.gallantfew.org backslash all star. And now it's my pleasure to bring on to a Morley podcast podcast. Carl Monger. Carl, it is great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Tony.
0: You are my boss. And that's not why we you're here. We We do work together. You are the founder of Gallant Few. We will talk about a military veteran nonprofit. You're an Army Ranger veteran from the 1st Imperial Ranger Battalion, First as Ms. Ranger. Ms. Sheila Dudley, <laughs> the empress of that battalion, um, tells me about. And you also come from... A military family. So let's start it off for somebody just tuning in with the now, the here and now. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you do as Executive Director for Gallant View.
1: As the Executive Director for Gallant Few, I have the privilege of working with a phenomenal team that helps veterans transition to lives of hope and purpose. That's in a nutshell what we do.
0: And it's amazing and you've been doing it for 10 years,
1: 11 or 12. For- 12 years with Gallant Few because we started the planning Mm -hmm. in 2009, but it really began uh, after I left the military in 1994-95 when I helped the first uh, Desert Storm veteran that I encountered that had severe post-traumatic stress, substance abuse. He worked at the same company that I worked at and uh, he pulled me aside one day. He was a mechanic. This is a a beverage, 7up Bottling Company, Mm -hmm. and I was the safety and training director. And I walk past because I'm out checking the motor pool, right, making sure everything's getting taken care of. And he says, "Do you see them watching me?" I'm like, "His name's Darren. Darren passed away a couple of years ago, but, but Darren." Uh, I'm like, "Darren, what? Uh, I'm not sure what you're talking about." He's like, they've, "Ever since I got out of the army, they've been watching me. Who's been watching you? I don't know. Just, just people." So we became friends, and I started having a conversation with him about things that were important in his life. And uh, we got so close. I didn't realize how much substances he was abusing until one night he showed up on my door and said, my wife will let me come home uh, because I've been using substances. And I said, well, you're not staying here either, but I will drive you to a clinic. And so I forced admitted him into a, a rehabilitation clinic and he didn't like it at first, but when he got out, he was, uh, 100% different person and ended up over the next couple of years, he he went uh, back into the National Guard, ultimately went to OCS, got commissioned, worked his way to become a major in the in the National Guard, uh, actually hired him to work for me when I ran a United Rentals branch. And so we had this friendship that went over a number of years And and due to health problems, I think there were some, probably some long-term damage done from substances early on. That ultimately he passed away, but uh, it was he was the very first one that I had the opportunity to kind of come alongside and mentor. And, and anybody else that he would tell that to, and I'm not saying that I'm mean, anything special in this regard, but most of the people that he told that to would be like, "Oh man, I don't want anything to do with you." And I took the opposite track. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's going on? Why do you feel that way? Show me some proof, and then let's see if you need some help. Let's see what we can do to do that.
0: I love that you led with that story. So any, because anybody that knows Gallant Few and how Gallant Few operates in the heart of Gallant Few, it's one-on-one relationships. So now I want to introduce the audience. And this is very important to me personally, because Carl Monger is a horrific self-promoter. Gallant Few has been doing wonderful work for well past a decade now. And Carl will not take any credit. So I'm not going to have you take credit. Because you're uncomfortable doing that, and know if, as I said, he does not do this well. But I think your story that you just told about an individual is really layered from your own story. So if mm-hmm. you could, you know, what you feel comfortable with, tell your family story of service
1: mm-hmm.
0: and its impact on you. I think it will help frame how we got here.
1: Sure. Sure. Um- Figure out where the best place to start is. I, I didn't learn until late in life that my father's father, all the way back to the Revolutionary War, I had a long history of service, um, mostly enlisted in the Army. And uh, I had uh, actually had a one of my great, 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 great grandfathers passed away in Andersonville Prison.
0: Oh, goodness. Just, and, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. So uh, it's there was this history that I didn't know about because – My father, who retired as a sergeant major in the Army Reserve System, left my family when he was an E-5. I was was very young. I was three or four years old at the time. And I had a sister two years younger than me, and my mom was pregnant. And he he went, he decided he had enough of us, and he looked elsewhere and and got lured away from our family, whatever you want to call it, he left. Mm -hmm. And so we went through this incredibly difficult period of time where Uh, We we went to, uh, one of my earliest memories is a cross-country train trip from Manhattan, Kansas, because he was at Fort Riley, to Pennsylvania, where my my mother's parents lived, my grandparents, and we went to live with them for a few years, and as they relocated around the country, ultimately landed in Wichita, Kansas, which is kind of where I I, uh, mostly grew up, but that experience early on led me to be the the man of the family when I was eight, nine years old. My mom had she she really led by example because she didn't let the circumstances of what happened put her into victim mode. Mm -hmm. She she definitely used family to help out, but she got a job during the day as a teacher and then she went to school at night to finish her degree and ultimately get her master's degree. And so she was an educator her whole career. But Now I'm let's say I'm nine years old. I've got a seven and a five year old sister. Well, this is in the sixties. Mom didn't have a whole lot of money, so guess who got to be the babysitter? At nine years old, I've got two sisters, and she she leaves to go to school, and that's you know today that would be you'd go to jail for that. Back
0: oh definitely
1: back then it was like she told the neighbor, hey, I'm gonna be gone. Keep an eye on the kids, Mm -hmm. and and I knew the neighbor. If I needed anything, I'd go I'd go over there and ask for it. So. That, that process made me grow up. And, and I had forgotten about this, but my mom told me years later that she would find notes in the refrigerator that I would make dinner, put my sisters to bed, and then I would make her a sandwich and I'd leave a note on it in the refrigerator. And I remember one time that things were so tight that um, we had, uh, she'd gone to the grocery store and when we were putting stuff away. The gallon jug of milk fell on the floor and broke and milk went everywhere. And I remember her just sinking into a chair and crying because she didn't have money to go buy a drug of it. milk. That was it until the next time that she got paid. So so I, I understand the the dire straits that people can be in when economically their situation is really, really, really tough. And and my grandparents, they did they did well. My my grandfather was in finance, did worked in the meatpacking industry for most of his career. And uh and they helped, but not they weren't like, whatever you need, we'll pay for it. right? They, they helped, and, and I have wonderful memories of on Sunday, we would throw all our toys and stuff in the car. We'd go to church with my grandparents, and we'd go to my grandparents' house for the day before we went back home. But that, early on, it was a lot of responsibility that I picked up as a young kid. About the time that I was, I us say maybe 9 or 10 years old, My uncle, my mother's brother, was a career law enforcement officer. He was um, one of the founding members of the SWAT team in Wichita. He went to the FBI terrorist school and all of this stuff back in the 60s and 70s. Um, He pulled my mom aside and said a new program had started in Wichita called Big Brothers. And the statistics showed that single-parent boys were more likely to be in trouble than boys that had both parents at home. So he encouraged her to enroll me in Big Brothers. And now it's Big Brothers Big Sisters. But sure. It's just Big Brothers. And so I became one of the first little brothers when the program started. I think it was 1969 was when the program spun up. So I'd have been eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had, I was matched to uh, an attorney named uh, Dave that drove a white convertible Corvette. And 19, I think it was 1968, 69 model, which made a huge impression on me. But through his example, he showed me that I could take charge of my future, that I didn't need to be a victim, that I could decide what I wanted to do. Right around that same time, and you see things passing around social media right now that uh, the moon landing, right, the anniversary of the moon landing is this week. And I remember as a kid watching it on a little black and white TV, and I was dead set. I was going to be an astronaut. That was my plan. I had... I even got a card table that I swiped from the family room and I put it in my bedroom and I had booklets and pamphlets and models and anything that had to do with the space program. I dreamed at night of being uh, an astronaut. And the thing that was lacking was at that point, I didn't put an intentional plan in place to become one. Right. So I didn't pursue the math and the sciences and the things that I needed to do. And I went on my educational side. I went a little more on the easy route and part of that, I think, is because I didn't have a father that sat down and said, what do you want to do? And really was able to focus me on that. So, you know, years later, I decided to to go into the Army by accident. Uh, I don't know how much of the story we have time or you want me to tell. But, but when I did that, that's when I really learned that I, I believe that I had the Capability to do anything that I wanted to do. And so then I really started pursuing the hard stuff.
0: Well, I think that's a good, a good stopping point to lead to the next question. You know, mm-hmm. kind of the, the, a recap of that. Mm-hmm. There, there, there was, there was leadership in the house. It may not have been from two, mm-hmm. but it was from one. And that you took that and you grew with that. So, so you did learn and then big brothers and big sisters. And so. There was once, also
1: a big influence from our church. We, we belong to a Presbyterian church. That I saw the tight community that was there, but that my mom was a part of a group that had other women that had been divorced or widowed. And, and then as they all remarried, and ultimately my mom remarried, and I got stepdad who was a World War II veteran. And uh, that I saw the tightness of that community that helped each other out when there were problems. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that um, I am learned. The other uh, experience with the church was uh, because mom didn't have a babysitter when. She went to choir at church. We went to church and we had the run of the entire place. We would play hide and seek and we would go go into the little kids' room and play with all the blocks. We were bored with that. Then we'd go do something else. But my early upbringing was incredibly immersed in just being in the physical presence of the church and then surrounded by the other people that were there.
0: So that, that would bring in the community aspect. Mm-hmm. And you know, going back, you look at Gallant Few, one-on-one understanding of an individual, whether it be an active duty service member in transition, a new veteran in transition, or, or a veteran in reintegration. You have to understand them to be able to apply resources in the community, mm-hmm. which help raise you. Let's talk now. I mean, I, that's not a story of overcoming. For many of us, we come from um, homes that have... Um, Divorces, remarrying, it's not always perfect. It's its more the, the norm. Mm-hmm. A lot of people can relate to that. But let's talk about your military experience. Mm-hmm. An infantry officer out of ROTC. Um, I got to tell you
1: how this happened. Okay. Because my mom steered me as far away from military as possible because of my father. And well, I got to backtrack just a little bit because when I went into uh, Wichita State University, I was the first member of my family to really go traditional, out of high school, got a little bit of a scholarship, took some loans out and went to school. And uh, I thought I was going to pursue aeronautical engineering, right, astronaut stuff. But I hadn't laid the foundation on the science side. So I started really struggling when I got into some of the more science-intensive classes. So I'm walking down the engineering hallway at enrollment time for second semester of my freshman year, And I see a sign on the wall for marksmanship class. I'm like, I need an elective. I need an A. I bet I can get an A in marksmanship class. How hard can that be? Well, it turns out it was an ROTC class in disguise. And so when I got into the program uh, in this old time school, underneath the old school auditorium was a rifle range, and they had 22 caliber match grade. I mean, these must have been thousand dollar rifles in the early 80s. And we would go underneath this theater and we had a, a uh, I'm sorry, a Korean War and Vietnam veteran, Sergeant Major, the name Seals was his last name, and he taught us marksmanship. And through this process, the other ROTC cadets told me about a weekend, they were doing an FTX, field training exercise, which would consist of doing some very simple rock climbing and learning how to repel. Let's go. They invited me to come. So they had a little group they called the Wichita Rangers. And they even had a little blue Wichita Rangers tab they wore on their ROTC uniform. So I went out with them. I really enjoyed it. But the kicker was the professor of military science was a lieutenant colonel named Andy Kushner. And Andy Kushner um, was a Vietnam veteran. He either jumped into or almost jumped into the Dominican Republic with the 82nd. He was uh, Special Forces. He had his Ranger tab. He had a handlebar mustache. He was, if you look at, like, the, a statue of a Special Forces soldier, the one that has the, if you've ever seen the one that's got the beret on, he's holding his M-16, and he's got a rope slung around his sure. shoulders, that looked like this guy. He actually had that statue on his desk. And so he, st- he took me under his wing, and he started teaching us stuff about how to make a solar still so you could get water, and, and he led the rappelling exercises, and it just it became something that I really enjoyed to the point where we found ourselves rappelling off the back of the football stadium on a number of different occasions. Um, I liked it so much that he called me into his office. It was probably the end of that semester, and he suggested that I apply for an ROTC scholarship. So not flattered, and I need money for school because I'm paying for it, right, through student loans. So I applied, and I got the uh, three-year Army ROTC scholarship. So now I'm into my freshman year, and uh, starting, I, I go on contract. First year as a sophomore, they come to me and they say, hey, we've got an airborne slot, do you want it? And so 1981, I went to jump school. I had been to nothing. I hadn't gone to any basic training, no ROTC advanced camp. My hair was down well over my ears. This is 1981. I uh, got issued a green pickle suit, the, even before the, the BDUs. Mm-hmm. And, and my experience showing up at Fort Benning as a 19-year-old college kid was eye-opening. And as I walked in, I'm carrying my duffel bag into the barracks. I'm going up the stairs, and there's a captain that comes walking down the stairs, Airborne Cadet, and all I remember of him is that he was about five feet tall, but his shoulders are about five feet wide, and he walks past me, and then he stops, and he just yells, cadet, and so I'm like, are you talking to me? (laughs) And I learned right then that I needed to get a haircut, and I needed to fix my uniform, and all of this other stuff, but uh, I remember carrying the duffel bag up, throwing it in the room, shoving it in the wall locker, and the Annapolis cadet that was my roommate being horrified that I wasn't hanging my stuff up. So now he has to teach me how to make a bunk and how to hang my stuff up. And I mean, it was, I was a real pain in the butt for anybody that encountered me then because I didn't know anything. But now I'm starting to understand that there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. So now I start trying to become a sponge and I start really trying to, to soak it all in. And the first morning formation, we're standing out there, we're getting ready to go into uh, ground phase of jump school, and the school first sergeant calls sick call, and there's like 20 soldiers that fall out for sick call, and I'm like, w- "Why are you here? I'm here for jump school. What I can't even believe that you would fall out for sick call." And that started the hey, um, I got a little injury in jump school. Didn't tell anybody about it because I want to stay in jump school, right? I wasn't, I wasn't interested in taking the easy way out, and that experience, those three weeks. Through um, going from college student that knew nothing about the military to coming out on the other end with airborne wings was transformative for me. And when I when I went back to Wichita, people knew that there was they could tell there was a difference in me. The Cadbury let me wear a red beret, while all the other Cadets oh, had a, to wear that's great. Had to wear the, the garrison cap. So that was it. Was uh, it was a lot of fun. I ended up being the ROTC, the Cadet Battalion Commander, and. Um, I was, well, all this whole group of Wichita Rangers, the cadets, we all had this pact that we were all going to go to ranger school. And two of us did. <laughs> the other ones did. It's not like they went and didn't finish. They just didn't go. So two of us went, two of us tabbed. And, um, yeah, so that, that's what launched me into military. So, but as I, um, but again, I don't know anything about my family my mom had steered me away from military stuff because she didn't want she didn't want me to go into the military and then I come back and tell her I'm going for an ROTC scholarship and I'm going to jump school and I'm going to ranger school and so it was uh, it was an experience for her too i was in ranger school during grenada she didn't understand what an army ranger was and i'm in ranger school and they jump into grenada and now there's foldouts in the newspaper that talk about what an army ranger is and what they're doing in Grenada. And now my mom's eyes are opened as to exactly what I'm getting myself into. But it uh, I always figured if I'm going to go into the military, I want it to be the best that I could. And so I pursued Ranger and, and uh, uh, I, I went after hard stuff. When I was, my first assignment was at Fort Lewis, now Lewis McCord, 9th infantry division. I didn't understand at that time what a ranger battalion was. And those rangers that I had bumped into in ranger school, I looked at kind of with awe because I felt that they were stronger, they were better soldiers, they knew more than I did. I felt like I was trying to keep up with them, which was a different experience than I'd had in school because everybody else is keeping up with me. Now I'm trying Mm -hmm. to keep up with them. So when I got to Fort Lewis, I did not make an attempt to go over to the ranger battalion. And I'm glad I didn't because I probably wasn't ready at that time to do it. Uh, but I watched them, and I got a lot of soldiers that were RFS that came to my battalion from Second Battalion, and and I was I took them in and you know, learned as much from them as I could. When I got my my uh, second assignment was Fort uh, I'm sorry was Schofield Barracks mm-hmm. in 25th Infantry Division, and my battalion commander there actually shell because he was the second one. When I got there, uh, when I went through a couple of leaders, it seemed like when I got into the Army that there were a lot of field grade officers that were left over from Vietnam that weren't maybe the caliber of some of the professional field grade officers that we run into today. Now, I have to caveat that with, I hang around with a lot of field grade officers from the Ranger Regiment, Right. Mm-hmm. But when I looked at battalion commanders in the ninth infantry division in the early eighties, I'm like it's not very hard to become a battalion commander apparently, because there were some other I was like, Why is I don't understand why this person is a battalion commander.
0: You can only select from what you have. That's unfortunately, that's which that, that's which is the reason for the creation of Mod, what what was becomes the modern day ranger. Yeah, regiment. And,
1: and I think at that point there were a lot of very capable people that, as the army switched into the volunteer mode, that they didn't want to put up with that, so they got out. So the ones that stayed, God bless them for staying, right? And I'm I'm not saying they were all bad because there were some very capable ones, but I think it was the distinguishable. Now is different than it was then by leaps and bounds. A lot of that has to do with the ranger regiment. I'm convinced because. When you look at the influence of the scrolls going out into the big army, Abrams' charter was brilliant and absolutely did what he had intended. So anyway, I get to Hawaii. I work on brigade staff. I, I get thrown. I'd never had a staff position before because i have just done company stuff, company XO, platoon leader, squad team leader, and I get to Hawaii and I get made the brigade assistant S three. And thank goodness I had some great mentors. I had uh, a major. Who um but his name is escaping me right now, but it's gonna to come to me in a minute. He was um right shortly before 9-11, he was a battalion commander in the it was either the 101st or the 82nd, no live fire range, and he got around to that. And and Lloyd Mills is his name. He was he was killed on active duty. He was the first, second of my friends that was killed on active duty. Um but Lloyd took me under his wing and really showed me he taught me project management because that was your job as the assistant Brigade 3 was project management. And I put together an exercise that took three battalions from the island of Oahu to two other islands in the Hawaiian chain, coordinated Navy, Air Force. It was this great big external evaluation. And because of my performance there, the brigade commander selected me to command a company in uh, 514, B Company 514. Um, Did not know that, I did not know, he knew, that a week after I took command, 514 was going to be alerted and taken to the, Nat, the Joint Readiness Training Center, then at Fort Chaffee for an external, a no-notice external evaluation. The Commander knew it, but not, nobody else below that did. And, uh, and he wrote later in my OER that he put me there because he wanted to change out the person that was before me and, and get the unit ready to go. Um, the saving grace to all of this was when I got there. My company commander, my, my company first sergeant, was a guy named Jimmy Acuna. And Jimmy Acuna had been a black hat for a long time. Before that, he had been on a Vietnam War team. And he was a Hawaiian Arnold Schwarzenegger. Phenomenal, half Hawaiian, half Chinese. He was huge. Bodybuilder, um, had been a plank holder platoon sergeant, 3rd Ranger Battalion, and when I came in, I remember the very first meeting that I had with him and the platoon sergeants, I sat down and and I said, what do you want to do with the company? And they're like, what do you mean, what do we want to do with the company? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm the company commander, but I'm going to be gone in a year and a half, two years. Most of you are going to be here longer. What do you want to do with the company? It was a cohort company, so I'm second iteration company commander, the first one that picked him up at basic training. And um, they had never been asked that question before. So as we went out and started evaluating training, I started turning over the training to them. And, and it was an eye-opening experience for both of us because, aside from Acuna, they had never experienced that. And now Acuna's like, thank God I've got a company commander that will let me do what I know I can do. So we started identifying um, the things the company needed to do, and I, start, I turned it over to the first sergeant to make it happen. And we built that company, he built that company, into what I thought was the best infantry company in the 25th Division by the time that I changed command. Um, About eight months into company command, new battalion commander came in. And this battalion commander was a guy named Jim Dubick. And Dubick had been uh, an original, I think it was a platoon leader, 2nd Battalion, company commander, 2nd Battalion, had been 1st Battalion XO, and... Now was in Hawaii for his battalion command, and about a month or two into battalion command, he called me into his office, and he said it was the second time that a colonel had really complimented me. The first one was the one that said you should apply for an ROTC scholarship. This time Dubick said you should put in a packet for Ranger Regiment, and I said you think you think I'm ready? And he's like, yeah, I think you're you're ready for it, and. Funny story, because he said, okay, here's what you do. Here's how you put your packet together. Mm-hmm. So he told me, get letters from all your previous battalion commanders, get all your awards, all your OERs, put it all in a packet, and then and bring it to me, and then we'll put 4187 out and send it in. And so I put all of this together, and I walk into him. I say, sir, I'll get everything that I need except your letter. And he goes, oh, just a minute. He opens up his desk drawer, and he pulls out his Golden Dragons notepad, and he gets a green pin out and he writes, Buck, hire this guy, Jim, R-L-T-W, Jim. And he rips it off and hands it to me. And I got all these other ones on DA Letterhead, right? In Boss, very official. All this okay. Very official stuff. And then I've got his handwritten note. And I, I said, You want me to put this with this? And he said it's better than any other letter you have in that packet, because he'd been a platoon leader from Buck Karnett. And so my my packet went in the uh, Assistant My brigade commander at the time was Dave Oley, who was hiring first ranger company commander in Vietnam. <coughs> and uh, and Oley fully supported the packet and pushed me up to uh, division. General Bramlett, who was the assistant division commander for operations, declined my 497 and said, no, nope, we're keeping him. He's going to command another company here. Which I thought was nice, but that's not what I wanted to do.
0: Mindset had already been made. Yeah, it's made, yeah. yeah,
1: and so then, uh, about a month later, I didn't hear anything. All crickets. About a month later, I get a welcome letter from the 75th Ranger Regiment. That says, "Congratulations, you've been selected for assignment. You report to." Then they called it Rope Ranger Orientation Program uh, in uh, in July of of uh, 1990 and i got this packet december 15 16 1989
0: so i wonder if any of the listeners are putting together, putting together the pieces there the well you, you got your mom in Grenada finding out some some rangers are participating and this might be your son but you miss it by a couple of years because you're not it's not time yet no, now, now
1: school
0: during Grenada yeah. yeah and and now you get accepted. Everything's great. Got orders. Got orders. And,
1: then, and uh,
0: everybody... everybody
1: goes and jumps into Panama.
0: What I'd like to do, Carl, so much. I would like to get a second. Let's do another episode and let's talk through that star. Mm-hmm. Let's talk through self-training responsibility. We've we've kind of talked about how you've gotten to this place. Let's talk about the licensing to becoming a certified counselor, uh, passing the national registry and, and where Gallant Few is going and where it's built on. So I thank you so much for coming on for this, this episode. We'll let's bring it back with part two. And we want to thank you um, for watching a Morley podcast. I hope you learned a little bit about Carl Monger. There are people that care for our veteran community, and look at things through not just your personal experiences, but with scientific approaches to make us better to save lives and to optimize lives as well. So thank you for joining us for this week's More Late Podcast. We will see you next week with another great episode. Until then, as my dad said, leave it better than you found it. Rangers leave the way. We hope you enjoyed a Morley podcast with Tony Maine, and we appreciate your viewership. If you'd like to hear more from Tony or one of his guests, you can view or listen to past episodes at TonyMain.Podbean.com. Until next time, be a community builder for America.